You are listening to 14 Employee Experience. I am Josh Green, joined here by Alexander Noren, our co-host and wonderful friend. How are you today? Doing good. And you know, it's interesting. Was it a friend before the co-host or a co-host before the friend? We'll never know. But the important thing <laughs> is that we have an amazing guest on the line with us today. I am very, very excited for this guest. His name is Dr. Tomas Chamorro Pre Music. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. We uh, are, are so excited to pick your brain. For those of you who don't know who Dr. Tomas is. Shame on you. He, shame on you. <laughs> he is an international authority in psychological profiling, talent management, leadership development, and people analytics. He has previously held academic positions at New York University and the London School of Economics and frequently lectures at our hometown, Harvard Business School. We're literally on Harvard Business Campus right now. Stanford Business School, London Business School, and IMD. He has written 10 books. 10 books and over 150 scientific papers on the psychology of talent, leadership, innovation, and AI, making him one of the most prolific social scientists of this generation. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Is there anything else that we need to know about you? No, that's uh, an excessively kind introduction. And I hope that your listeners know that they should not actually feel ashamed if they hadn't known. <laughs> that is for the vast majority of the world's population. And uh, we don't want everybody in the world to be ashamed. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. All right. That is fair. But, you know, it's a here at Forging Employee Experience, we are all about all of these things that you talked about, all the research that you've done. We're, we're, we're so excited about this, in, including your most recent book, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? I mean, that is such a specific and great um, oh, title. I just, I just want to start off with kind of what you start off in the book with. Uh, up front, we start talking a little bit about the economic cost of disengagement. It, it is astounding to, to know that in the United States alone, uh, annual productivity loss is around $500 billion. That's a Gallup poll that says that we lose $500 billion in productivity because of disengagement. And, and you just go through and and list is it's not just the funding it's not just the productivity it's the retention it's uh so many things you, you say between 10 to 30 percent of employees annual salary is lost to turnover costs so you really paint the picture up front about how big of a problem disengagement is not just financially but for the overall well-being of, of humans so, so tell us a little bit about how you discovered this. Like, wh where do you find your passion in this and, and potentially a solution? Like, where do we go from here? Yeah, so, you know, good questions. I think, uh, first, it's important to understand that uh, there are objective and subjective consequences of higher productivity levels. You know, the objective ones are that um, a society, a whole economy, benefits when it produces more. Uh, its GDP grows, its costs of living, its um, uh, standards of living, life quality grows, resources, infrastructure, etc., etc., etc. So, um, you know, I think that's almost unnecessary to state. Then you have the subjective benefits of higher productivity. When people are able to perform to higher levels and achieve more 
working less, which by the way is the standard definition of productivity, output divided by input. So you either um, achieve more working the same amount that you have in the past or um, you actually um, increase your input but increase your output in, in, in higher proportion. Um, people feel good, they feel uh, valued, they feel valuable, they feel more creative, and they have a deeper connection with their employers. So that sort of makes uh, the case for looking at the main drivers of productivity. And one of the most consistent ones in the last two decades is employee engagement. And I think one of the things we often forget is that um, unlike in um, fields of exceptional talent, like professional athleticism or the you know, professional artists, music, performers, in most jobs, in most work environments, um, there are systematic and significant differences in productivity between people, which actually aren't a function of their talent or ability, they're simply a function of their motivation. This is really interesting because even when companies think that they should pay a lot more to recruit people who are more qualified, more talented, have higher IQs, and seem to be super smart, at the end of the day, if those people aren't going to be very motivated or motivated enough in their everyday jobs, they're going to perform worse than people who are mediocre from a talent perspective, but highly engaged. So this is, this is I think, the fascinating aspect of engagement that we often forget. That's, that, to me, completely revolutionizes the way we look at talent acquisition. You know, it, 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 it to me, says we spend too much time focusing on the hiring the person with the right skill set when sounds like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is really we want to make sure that we have folks on board that um, you can teach skills to whomever. It doesn't really matter. But what matters more than anything is that they're aligned with the mission and the vision of the company, of, of the team, that they're engaged, that they're showing up for work. And all that stuff is very much a, sounds like it's very much a personality fit over a skill set fit. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, probably um, if you imagine that you could break engagement uh, variability into two halves, there is the half that is really dependent on the person himself or herself, and that has to do with their personality. Are they generally uh, optimistic, uh, positive? Do they have high EQ? Are they a team player? Um, you know, are they? Uh, do they lack some of the negative traits that disengage people, like being too cynical, skeptical, moody, irritable? Uh, and the other half depends on the context, but most of that context has to do with one specific variable, which is the person's direct line manager or supervisor. Right. Um, you know, I would say uh, the situation or the context is other people. And for most employees, uh, there's one specific person that matters, which is their boss. Right. Mm. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one one issue in employee engagement, probably one of the, the biggest prevailing issues is the, the statements that we hear all the time, people don't quit their job, they quit their boss. Essentially, right. they, they quit their mid-level manager. 
and mm-hmm. and so the response that I think the world typically comes up with is let's provide leadership training for our mid-level managers, which, which brings a lot of problems to light that leadership training can't just be a one-off thing for everyone because every person is different. Also, who are we promoting to being a manager if it's the top performer that most likely, according to the research, isn't the best fit for the promotion? And so we have all of these uh, malpractices on who gets to be the mid-level manager. And then that also begs the question of, is having mid-level managers even the best practice? If you look at managers as just a something that someone that we've put there because as, as a tool to make sure people are doing their work, maybe there's a more effective tool or a more effective structure. And so as we think about these things, I'm curious about your take. If, if that's such a prevailing issue, like how, how do we solve it? Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I don't think so much in terms of the formal titles or um, the hierarchical levels of leadership or management that you describe, but more in terms of the psychological roles that people fulfill. We know that uh, even if you don't assign people to formal roles and hierarchies, if you put five or six people together and they need to accomplish something, somebody needs to be in charge. Somebody needs to provide a strategy guide them and enable people to suppress their individualistic or selfish um, you know, agendas or goals to at least temporarily work for um, the benefit of the collective unit and build a cohesive unit. So leadership emerges naturally, even in leaderless groups. Now, it is also true that when you're looking at large organizations, it's a very unnatural way to organize human behavior because for the vast majority i mean maybe 99.9 percent of our 200,000 years of evolutionary history we tended to live all our lives with just five or ten people so we knew everybody very well and we had very very clear um, models to predict other people's behaviors if you look at organizations that have 400,000 people or even 2,000 people, that's when you start to need formal hierarchies and structures. So the big question to me is whether the people who are formally assigned to lead the different units actually are capable of exercising a positive degree of psychological influence. And with the mid-level managers, you know, I think sometimes the issue is not so much that they are um, inept or unqualified or ill-prepared to manage down, but that they actually have to report to leaders who are not very good and might be disengaging them. So that trickles down. You know, we typically think that good things trickle down, but bad things trickle down even more. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, wow. There's so much to unpack here. As, as I was reading through your book, I just love some of the themes that you go through. You you talk about confidence disguised as competence. You talk about why bad guys win. You talk about what a good leader looks like, how do leaders get better. And, and, and so like all of these tools are extremely helpful, I think, to helping us restructure what we think a good leader is and, and how we can put people there who drive engagement. Um, it's just... There, there's so much to be done. I, I just want to ask about this one story that you share. Uh, 
it, you have so many great examples in your book around Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and, and sharing all of these great leaders and, and some of their strategies. And then you talk about John, who was a terrible leader, and then he sought help to become a better leader, and he became a leader. And I was like, wow, this is an awesome story. I can't believe that this guy like changed his life. It's the first time I've ever heard of like a leader who was terrible, who ended up becoming better. And then you go on to say, yep, that was actually a fake story. <laughs> that, that, that actually didn't happen. And I think, I think the point that you were getting at is that it's, it's hard to receive appropriate leadership development. Can you talk mm -hmm. more to that? Yeah, and you know, I'm glad that uh, the the story of that anecdote had the desired or the intended uh, effect, which was, you know, to I think, uh, for a lot of people, even when they are reading that story, they had that same reaction you mentioned, which is if 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 you're not reacting with a bit of cynicism, you are amazed that something like that can happen because. Um, well, the bottom line is that if you digest or synthesize the research evidence, it indicates very, very clearly that people can change. They can also get better, even in things like leadership, um, but that most people don't actually change and they don't improve. Um, so it's the willingness to change that seems to be the biggest obstacle for um, improving one's leadership potential. And then what tends to happen is that um, executive coaching or leadership development intervention, in a way, tend to work mostly with those who need it the least because there are personality characteristics like humility, curiosity, uh, emotional intelligence, coachability, self-awareness that predict how much people improve. It's a little bit like saying, you know, pick a hundred people and I'm pretty sure that uh, with the right amount of training, teaching, resources and time, we can turn all of them into great piano players or great basketball players. But at the same time, it would be naive to um, expect all of them to learn uh, at the same level of pace or to the same degree of competence. So uh, you're much better off developing and improving others if you already take into account um, whether they have potential or not. And you, I see this with managers and leaders all the time. The ones that respond very favorably to feedback, to information, to constructive criticism, um, they get better and better. And the ones that actually need coaching or development the most are pretty much uncoachable. And I'm not going to name any famous politicians or examples here because people can use their imagination. <laughs> well, that, that is kind of the crux of how you developed your love for this to topic. I mean, you became a leadership psychologist because you saw within your own country, poor leaders kind of drive the economy of the company into the ground. Um, so, so, so I, I, wanna, I want to, to know from you, you mentioned about this idea of like who has potential or not. It seems the problem is that a huge issue that we have with engagement is that we have terrible leaders. And the reason mm -hmm. we have terrible leaders is two things. It's one, leadership development is very specific to that individual and we don't have 
the right people, the right potential, they're learning the piano, if you will. So what, what, is a, a fut- what does a future of leadership look like and the future of engagement in your eyes? Yeah, so, you know, um, and, and that's a great summary you just uh, did there. I think um, if we want a better future for engagement and for leadership, um, it has to begin with selecting individuals to leadership roles when they actually have potential. That means focusing less on their confidence, their charisma, and even their self-centeredness, entitlement, or narcissistic tendencies, and more on their actual competence, on their humility, and on their integrity. And you know, on the one hand, when you tell people, don't you think we should have people, leaders or people in charge with competence, humility, and integrity? On the one hand, everybody says, yeah, of course. On the other hand, when you look at the choices people make, whether they are HR professionals, hiring managers, or voters in democratic political elections, we end up, more often than not, with leaders who are confident but not competent, charismatic but you know, without much humility, and quite narcissistic and without much integrity. When you end up with um, these individuals, uh, you're not going to have low levels of engagement, you're also going to have high levels of stress, anxiety, burnout, and low levels of productivity to the point that you get case studies or countries like Argentina, which 150 years ago was the future. It had a GDP higher than France and Germany. And today it's the only perpetually declining nation in the world, mostly because people keep electing incompetent leaders who are charismatic and overconfident crooks. And unfortunately, although I I lived in many countries since leaving Argentina 20 years ago, I can see this pattern being almost exported or replicated in so many countries, including the rich and developed world. One of the things I find really interesting is that today we have so much data to evaluate the performance of leaders. You have live Twitter feeds that fact-checked fact-check what leaders or uh, political candidates say in live televised debates, and we still don't care. We actually care about how people look, whether they're entertaining, whether they um, are charismatic, confident. So maybe because uh, uh, ubiquity and abundance of data is overwhelming and daunting, so we focus on what we can see and we sort of want to economize mentally and we have this lazy attitude where we still think that in split seconds we can tell whether somebody has leadership potential or not, like in the dark ages or 150,000 years ago, but that's not the case. So the solution is science, data, and that those tasked with picking leaders have the humility and self-criticism to distrust their instincts and follow the facts. Mm. Yeah, and that's and that's huge, right? This this idea of of make, making sure that we're, you know, as as uh, as as people, especially when in power, to, uh, to to kind of select the leaders, like you mentioned, the democratic process. You know, it, it brings me to this thought that I've been kind of thinking about as as we've been chatting. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, on this podcast so far the the idea of the leader's role. Um, in, in, in the traditional leadership sense, but I'd be curious to hear what, what your thoughts are on peer leadership. I, I think that there's definitely, uh, obviously, a, a huge amount of um, maybe unofficial leadership that happens within or- organizations and groups. And, and I, I've always been of the opinion that, that the peer leaders often have um, 
have some of the biggest influence um, out, outside of the, you know, the more official hierarchical leader. So out of curiosity, how, how does peer leadership fit into the models that we've been talking about? Um, I absolutely agree, you know, and I think uh, people see it um, very clearly when they follow a sports team, you know, in professional athletics, because there might be somebody who is the formal coach or manager, but then there is also, and there might be a team captain, but there, there are also the individuals in that team that display um, and exercise leadership, meaning they get the team to work together and attain higher results. And by the way, those individuals are not always the same. It might be that one week it's this person and then next week it's somebody else, even though probably there are two or three people who rotate and share that role. The same happens in organizations. And I think if you look at some of the research, particularly out of MIT Media Lab that has mapped the social networks in organizations, the dynamics of actual relationships and influence in organizations, you can see that there's often no overlap between the people who are formally in charge and who have the ability to exercise power because they control resources and they can hire, promote, demote, fire people. And those that actually are driving a positive impact on others who will be the peer leaders that you mentioned. So I think in a logical world, we will try to align both. And when we see that somebody is a positive influence on a team or unit, they should also be the formal leader. It's almost like the difference between having the power to change people's behavior. If I tell you do this or you get fired, you know, that's power and what I'm changing is your behavior. But if I'm your colleague or your peer and I'm telling you, why don't we do this this way? And that helps you change your beliefs and then your behavior. The latter is a better example of leadership. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, it's, it's, I, it seems too like that's, that's even the harder leadership to, to, uh, to teach, to learn, to, to measure, because it sounds a lot like, you know, these, these team dynamics, um, you know, when you think about who the, who's the, the person in charge, you know, that has, has the ability to change behavior, right. With, with, with the power, um, sometimes you get the rest of the followers like, well, I, you know, nothing I can do. I'm not in charge. If I was in charge, I'd do this. You know, I think that's a, a very popular sentiment among a, a group of folks who are disengaged from whatever they've, you know, almost like given up hope. Like, yeah, well, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I'm not in charge, mm-hmm. but it's like, that's not, that's not the case at all. Right. Like we, we all right. have, we all have influence within our own spheres that, uh, if we, if we're really committed to, to helping the team or the organization improve, you know, we mm-hmm. have that, we have that opportunity. It's fascinating. Yeah. And that, and that, and that also applies to, you know, upward leadership in a sense, employees can exert an enormous amount of influence on their bosses, getting them to align with certain goals and influencing them and even leveraging the power that their bosses have to help the organization. Um, some people know it, but it tends to be a minority of individuals. And, um, you know, that's also on the table. So let me ask you a question on that, because you touched on something that we think a lot about here at Forgent is the idea of giving employees a voice. Uh, it, it seems like when we have a leader who is all about the, the power, it's you do what I tell you to do and there's no questions asked. Whereas I think we're learning that, more adaptive leadership comes from 
what do you think as an organization as a whole and let's try and make steps to move towards that how do you feel what do you feel is the best way to give employees that voice outside of the leadership you know renouncing a little bit of their power or maybe infusing their power into the employees a little bit is it uh, a communication technology is it um, a lot of these employee engagement platforms I would just be curious what you think yeah I think you know it almost doesn't matter so much how you do it I think the tools or the methodologies uh, are anecdotal, although some of the ones you mentioned are um, valid in, in many circumstances, including um, you know, the broad area of climate surveys or crowdsourcing um, the climate or a culture of an organization. Um, I think what matters fundamentally is that employees perceive that they can speak up. Here's where all the research on psychological safety um, becomes very relevant, that one of the main um, characteristics or ingredients of high-performing teams is that most people in those teams feel that they can be honest with others and speak up, and even speak up critically towards others, even when they are more powerful or in a position of status. And then I think um, just because you're um, running annual engagement surveys or asking people how they feel. Even now, you know, we have companies that do this via regular pulses or, um, you know, tapas style kind of engagement service, which is regularly asking them one or two questions. All of that is good, but what matters in the end is whether employees feel that organizations may actually act on that information. This is one of the fundamental frustration of many engagement professionals and engagement vendors. They say, look, companies are paying us a lot of money to ask people how they feel. They're using these um, pretty interesting and relevant benchmarking data and seeing how they compare to their competitors. But mostly they don't have a plan or the willingness to act on that information to change. So in that sense, organizations are very much like individuals their willingness to change is often more limited than what it should be. Mm. That is prolific. Uh, yeah, and, and kind of sad, <laughs> right? Because it's like, it's like oh, here we are, we have so much technology and so much research, and why are we not moving forward? Well, because people just don't like change. Yeah. yeah, and you know, and here it's important that, uh, that we remember something that in a way, um, most of these problems will tend to solve themselves because the issue is not whether today everything is bad or terrible, but the fact that there's always differences in how well companies do these things. And there are at any point in time organizations that are more meritocratic, they're doing leadership identification and development better than their alternatives. And guess what? They tend to have higher engagement scores than their competitors and they tend to rank top of lists such as best places to work in and they tend to have not just higher levels of revenues profits and better performance kpis but they also tend to have sustained success over time so in a way what we're trying to do with our conversation our discussions and if we're trying to drive progress is to lift the average organizations so that most employees can improve the experience they have at work. 
top employers today, they've done a pretty good job in providing employees with consumer-like experiences, and that's why they are doing things really well. But we believe that you can also improve um, many, many smaller, less successful, less resourceful organizations if they apply some of these lessons or learnings, which is hire more competent leaders with integrity and focus on actually acting on the engagement feedback that you get from your employees. That is wonderful. And as we start to wrap up this episode, do you have any advice on where to get started? I think that a lot of organizations, like you said, want to get change started. And I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're not sitting back in their chairs and saying, we know how to change. We're just not going to do it. I think a lot of times it's like, okay, we want to change. We just have no idea in which direction we should start heading, which kind of brings it full circle as you talk about like looking at the facts, looking at the data, and then making your decisions based off of that. I guess to our listeners who are tapped into this and are just kind of asking, what do we do now? What kind of advice could you share with them? Look, that's, that's such a broad question that uh, it, it's, I'm afraid it's not possible you know, to come up with two or three bullet points that... Uh, I was talking actually... about the magic bullet. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> no magic bullet. So, you know, I'd rather end up in a, in a more high-level note, which is that regardless of the size of the organization, what this uh, problem actually requires is that companies align their strategy with their talent management processes. This is where you see a mismatch that actually creates a lot of the problems. A lot of companies are going in one direction. They know very well where they want to end up, but their HR uh, departments are not connected with that strategy. You know, So if, for example, your goal was to drive innovation and you really want to do that, then, well, you know, hiring entrepreneurial leaders and hiring individuals into their teams that are giving resources, autonomy, and asked to disrupt things will surely bring better results than asking people to do what they've always done before. You know, so I think there's no, it's not a case of one size fits all, but I think always you have to start with aligning um, the strategy of the organization with the talent management practices. And what will always be a commonality is make people, um, treat people fairly, help them uh, perform beyond their expectations, and they will engage, and that engagement will translate into bigger results. You know? So at the end of the day, that's the simplest of uh, suggestions that we could make. Engagement is about treating people fairly, giving them resources and assigning them to roles that are a good fit for their talents and their abilities. And that's something that anybody can do. You don't need to be Google or uh, Goldman Sachs to do this. You know, even small um, family owned businesses can follow the same formula and it will pay off. Mm. That, that, that's great. I, that, that, that little message of hope, it will pay off. I think is is something that we need to hang on to that there is hope that we can make it happen that we can continue to work towards building better organizations and that uh, eventually we will not only increase engagement in the workplace but just create a, a workforce that is happy and healthy and and wants to work towards the cause that you as a company has has set so uh dr thomas thank you so much for jump, jumping on the show with us today where's the best place to keep in touch with you 
So people can go to my website, which is drthomas.com, and it's Thomas with no H. So drthomas.com, and everything, including you know my books, papers, and video talks that I've done on the subject, can be found there. Your many, many TED Talks can be watched there. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. We, we are so excited to continue the conversation and dump, jump into all of the wonderful uh, resources that you have made public to the world. Thank you so much for the work that you do. We'll continue to keep in touch with you and uh, look forward to our next conversation. Yes, me too. Thank you so much. 